wonder whether we should use a holiday jingle for our theme music this month. That would be fun, but I think we're a little late. We should have started that at least before Thanksgiving. Could at least ring a jingle bell to have some cheer before we start talking about all this bad news. Maybe next week. Let's get started. Welcome to the first December episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the news by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, the editor here at Cleveland.com, and I'm with co-host Laura Johnston, who finished her holiday shopping in July. But that's only because I like to shop. I got to say, my holiday decorations are up. I have the presents wrapped under the tree. I mailed most of my Christmas cards this week, so I'm ready to go. Yes, you are amazing. You might call this our plastic bag episode, as we have three different people coming on to talk about developments in the effort to ban, or not to ban, these banes of the waterways. Did you ever think it would come to this for Ohio? We could be a state that takes a stand in support of plastic bags. You're the expert on Lake Erie. How often have you seen plastic in the water? Plastic is everywhere in Lake Erie, whether it's bags or balloons or plastic bottles. About 10% of plastic manufactured ends up in waterways, and it never breaks down either. It just breaks into hundreds of thousands of pieces of microplastics that fish and birds and we imbibe. It's a massive problem, and while banning the bag isn't going to solve it, it, it feels like a start. I'm also looking forward to our discussion about legal marijuana in Michigan and how that might affect Ohio. And I'm kind of astounded that we're going to be talking anew about a dirt bike track proposal in Cleveland. Again, one of those Cleveland news stories that keeps coming back around. In a couple of weeks, we'll start talking about the biggest stories of the 2010s, and this is definitely going to make the list. All right, let's get the conversation started. Here comes Jane Cahoon. We missed you last week, Jane. Glad to see you back behind the microphone. Good to be back. So let's start with crime reform. If you'd been asleep for the last 20 years and you woke up today, you'd be astounded to learn that an effort to reform crime laws in Ohio is sponsored by Republicans. (laughs) They have long been the law and order party, but a bill sponsored by Northeast Ohio Senator John Eklund would change a bunch of felonies to misdemeanors and try to get treatment for criminals battling addiction. So what gives? Well, there is a bill that the GOP considers a priority in the Senate, and that would reclassify low-level drug felonies down to misdemeanors. Uh, It would also provide some treatment options. Also, in the House, there's a, a separate bill that's a little different. It would not reclassify those offenses but it would provide something uh, called more opportunities for mm. treatment in lieu of uh, conviction. And that would give more people opportunities to get drug treatment without having convictions on their record. I should mention as an aside that Ohio Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor does not like the Senate bill. She likes the House bill better because she feels that a misdemeanor is just not sufficient motivation. The penalty for a misdemeanor is not sufficient motivation for somebody to go into drug treatment. Who cares what she thinks? She's not a legislator. She's supposed to just (laughs) deal with the laws. She's only responsible for all the courts in Ohio. She's supposed to follow the law as the elected people see fit. So she's trying to interfere with a branch of government she has no business (laughs) in. Oh, my. Checks and balances. (laughs) But speaking of the courts, this has the, the potential to be transformative, right? Because right now... All those cases that are felonies are done in the county courts. This could dramatically shift huge numbers of cases into the municipal courts. County courts are run countywide. The municipal courts are run by cities. Does does either of these bills provide the funding that would be necessary for municipal courts to ramp up to handle those cases? Well, there's no appropriation component, but the uh, Senate bill would... Uh, allow them to um, keep some of these cases in common police courts, apparently, even if they bump them down to misdemeanors. So that you might not see that flood of cases to the municipal courts. So I'm still thinking about how the Republicans are doing this. It's a radical thought. Is it about saving money? Is it about the tragedy of addiction that's spread so far and wide that everyone has become familiar with it? Back in the 80s and 90s, lawmakers were doing everything possible to increase penalties for drug crimes. So what's the impetus to change this now? Well, there, there, things have changed in the GOP. You might recall that President Trump got behind a big criminal justice reform bill in Congress. And the, the thinking have cha- has changed. This has affected so many people. And it, it it's a way of even the most conservative, I think, do 
see the cost aspect where we're just locking up too many people and spending way too many resources on on that when we should be getting them back as functioning members of society. Mm -hmm. This affects people like businesses and employers who are not able to find enough sober employees to work for them, and they are the constituents of the GOP. So it does make sense now. All right, well, let's move on to a different conversation (laughs) about drugs, one that could be no less transformative. Starting last weekend, marijuana became legal in Michigan, not just for medical use, for recreational. The industry is just starting, so only four places are selling it, three in Ann Arbor and one over the border not far from Toledo. And people cannot have more than 10 ounces in their homes or more than 2.5 ounces in their vehicles. And Jane, as reported in the flyover newsletter about politics in the heartland states, the three stores in Ann Arbor sold $221,000 of product on the first day. That got me to wondering, are Ohio residents driving up there to get it? Well, yes. According to our friends in Michigan who have reported on this, they quoted one guy who said his business is thriving on Ohio customers. <laughs> uh, and law enforcement is aware of this, so they, they are on the lookout for people illegally transporting this stuff, but they don't have a specific plan, to they say, to target or profile people. You know, I drive to Michigan fairly often. <laughs> I have a three-and-a-half-year-old grandson there, so we spend a good bit of time. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen an Ohio police car just inside the Ohio border when I'm coming back in. I'll be interested to see if I start seeing them there waiting. It would be so easy to profile people with Ohio plates coming back in the state. But I have to think Ohioans might like the ease of buying marijuana legally. You and I both live in Cleveland Heights. We got to figure that many of our neighbors <laughs> like marijuana. But, oh, I don't know anyone. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. But to get it now in Ohio, you have to deal with a drug dealer, which, you know, that's illegal. It's an unsavory character. But for the ease of a, a what, a two-hour, three-hour ride, you can buy it legally, and then you just have to transport it back into the into the state. Right, which could be sticky, but, you know, the, there was an even an aspect to this like the medical marijuana aspect. Apparently, people who get medical marijuana, some people consider our law so onerous that they would go to Michigan for that as well. So Then are they allowed to transport it or no? Uh, no. No, you can't no. cross state lines. It's actually a federal crime, although nobody expects it will be prosecuted. Well, if the police do catch people coming in Ohio with their marijuana, Governor Mike DeWine might be making it easier for the drug users to get pardons. So what's his plan on, on the pardon thing? This week, the governor unveiled an expedited process for people seeking pardons. They would have to meet several high standards. They would have, uh, they can't be convicted of a crime for for at least 10 years. They have to be out of prison. They have to have done community service. They have to have a job history. And these people would get a quicker hearing and their process would, would move more quickly. I'm really perplexed by this. <laughs> I don't understand why you want to make pardons easier. And I'm the guy who's big on the right to be forgotten, right? We're a national leader already in the idea of removing the identities of people from dated stories on our site about mistakes they've made or old crimes. I get the idea of helping people move on. I believe in it firmly, and I think we've proven that. But isn't that what expungement is, or to be more precise, the the sealing of court records? If you get convicted and do your penalty, you can get your record sealed, and that allows you to go and apply for jobs, and and your record is clear. But a pardon is kind of like saying you didn't do it. It's it's, and I get it. There are people that have been pardoned that clearly did it. But it's what you do when you feel wrongly convicted, and you want somebody to say, no, actually, you're okay. Why do we need more of that? These are people that did commit the crimes. They are criminals. Okay, let me help you with this, Chris. (laughs) We wouldn't necessarily have more of that. What this is, first of all, the governor has no authority to grant expungements. He does have this awesome authority to grant a pardon, though. And the vast majority of people who seek pardons do not get them and probably don't deserve them. But there's this big, long line of people who've applied for this and the governor is looking at the power that he has and he's seeing that there are some deserving people you know who need a second chance and who have really turned their lives around 
And this process allows them to take those people out of line with all the other people. And if they meet these criteria, they can have a swifter process. Second of all, the governor does not consider a pardon to be an exoneration or an acknowledgement that there were errors made. He considers it an act of forgiveness and a second chance. Hmm. Well, DeWine is another Republican law and order guy. He was attorney general for eight years. So why does he say he's doing this? Well, I think he says that he he does believe in second chances and he believes in righting injustices where he sees them. Hmm. Okay, finally, this is our plastic bag episode. We're in the bag. Uh, we're going to talk later to Cleveland and Cuyahoga County about how they're planning a ban-, ban on bags. But with you, Jane, we wanted to talk about how the legislature wants to stop cities and counties like Cleveland and Cuyahoga from their own bans. So is Ohio really going to be that state that takes a stand for plastic? I will say maybe. <laughs> the There are bills in both the House and Senate. Senate President Larry Obhoff said he wants to... Um, act on the one in the Senate, I believe. And, uh, or actually, it's Larry Householder in the House who said he wants to act on his by the end of the year. The Senate one has had multiple hearings. In any event, they're both moving through the legislature, and they would preempt local authorities from passing their own bans. This is another one that is perplexing, because you're putting yourself into a position where you're taking a stand in favor of plastic bags. It just, it seems like (laughs) something you don't want to do. It's, it's a, it discourages economic development. It tells young people that we stand for all the wrong things. Why do the legislators feel they should stop places from, from taking this step in favor of the environment? They feel it's an unnecessary burden on people trying to make a living, retailers large and small, whose profit margins are, are small. And this is, it costs a lot of money to, to implement this. Has anyone examined whether plastics and affiliated industries are contributing money to the campaign accounts of these legislators? Well, I, I don't think it's so much as ABC company donating to XYZ legislator. It's more of the influence and clout that certain lobbies and organizations have, like the manufacturers and the retailers. And they have a big, big voice in the state house, and they they support candidates. And We're lucky John Oliver's show is on break. I don't think he'd miss <laughs> blasting us as a state that protects plastic shopping bags. But we did learn Wednesday we might have a way out of this. Governor Mike DeWine might save Ohio from international shame. Yes, you're going to like the governor on this one, right? Um, He told reporters yesterday that he does not think it's a good idea to preempt these local bans, that this is something that should be left up to the local authorities, and they should be able to experiment with what they think is going to work. I mean, you got to give DeWine credit. Like, he has to choose when he stands up to his fellow Republicans, and I I don't think he's been super shy about doing that as governor. It's like... Like yes. he's like, this is his grandstand. He's like, this is what I believe. Sometimes when you least expect it. Actually, he he's been a surprisingly good governor. I think our editorial board, if they could take it back, they'd have endorsed him. He is, is especially compared to John Kasich. He's done a lot of things, I mean, not everything you agree with, but he seems to take a measured look at everything before he makes his decisions. So you never you're never quite sure where he's going to come down, and that's what you want is somebody who's circumspect. Right. Uh, on the measured uh, front, um, we have more on anti-environment from uh, Jim Renacci, former congressman and a possible future candidate for governor. <laughs> uh, he wants to kill e-check to, to get rid of the emissions check that we've been doing, God, since I was started driving when I was 16. So uh, the biannual test of car emissions. Why does he want to do that? Well, he says when he was mayor of Wadsworth and when he was in Congress, he heard from a lot of constituents who hate this, which isn't surprising. It's a, it's a very hated program. So he wrote a letter to a House committee that's considering a measure that would urge the U.S. EPA to do away with this. You know, I, I, I've been around forever. So when E-Check started many years ago, <laughs> I, I remember people found it annoying because back then, most cars were put on these big rollers and their engines were revved at high speeds. There were long lines at the e-check stations and you had to pay for it. I think it was 20 bucks. But the state 
heard all those complaints and they took steps to make it easier and free. So I just did it. I was in there a month ago when my, my car registration was due. I was away on that one. I think it's on St. Clair. And I was in and out of there in literally minutes. The people doing the work were unfailingly polite and helpful. And it, it really wasn't inconvenient at all. I mean, it was, it, you know, I took a half hour at my lunch hour. Is Renacy really hearing from people today that this is, or were in the recent past that this was a problem? Or is he reflecting back on the day when this was something we all complained about? When's the last time you heard somebody complain about it? <laughs> well, it's, I totally agree with you. The last time we did this, you, you can even do it yourself. You don't even have to have, oh, although really? of course we required help from, <laughs> from someone to get us through it, but really it was no big hassle. I don't know if he's hearing from people now, but he is very much an anti-over-regulation guy, and he wants to be relevant in the Ohio conversation. He has established a policy organization called Ohio's Future Foundation, and he he wants to be a player. All right, but our air is terrible, and the reason that this was instituted by it was because the EPA came in and said your air is terrible. You have to clean it up, and this is right. a way every two years of making sure that somebody's car isn't spewing out a bunch of stuff that that poisons our lungs. Does he have an alternative way to keep the air from becoming polluted? Well, that's a good question. We'll have to we'll have to pose that question so, to him. No. <laughs> that's a big no. All right, so let's a- end our time with Jane with something fun. I'm talking about the Sloopies, as in hang on. Um, they're back. <laughs> so Jane, what is a Sloopy? A Sloopy, uh, this is our now, I guess, annual political awards. It's our second Jane. time. <laughs> well, so now we, we can say annual. You yeah. can't say annual the first time. We launched it last year through Capital Letter, our weekday newsletter that's free that you can sign up for at cleveland.com slash newsletters. And we decided to come up with these awards. We we solicited some suggestions for nominations and we uh, we're in the process of taking nominations now, and I think next week we'll we'll have the voting and then award the awards. So, who were some of the winners last year? Well, okay, some of my favorites. You know, last year at this time we were engaged in this bitter fight leading up to the speaker's vote, and Ryan Smith, the guy who was speaker, he got I think least savvy and most arrogant lawmaker or something that might have been a little rigged I don't know not rigged but stacked and um uh, but my very favorite was we we had a best dressed and worst dressed best dressed was Amelia Sykes the uh, democratic now the democratic minority leader and the worst dressed was a guy named Scott Lips who embraces his surname and wears like belt buckles and ties with like lips on them oh (laughs) wow and do we don't decide them right people vote or people vote on them right so we have a method where if if you get capital letter you'll find a link in there where you can go and vote for as many different categories as you want uh uh, you know everything from best use of social media to most bipartisan republican most bipartisan democrat etc all right, remind me how he came up for the name of these. I remember I had to reject some. It was like the Rotundies or the Rotundas or something. It sounded like we were making fun of portly people. Where did this? Where do we get Sloopies? I don't remember. You know, I think I was on vacation when you guys made a final decision on this, and I think it was you. And and my team is still mad about this because. Oh really? I felt like it was Seth came up with it. He might. It, it no, it wasn't have, Seth. Seth was I, upset I that we didn't call it the Rotundies. Seth wanted the Rotundies, oh, which okay. I think is very charming, and I think Chris way overreacted to that. And had I been in the I office like at the, the time, sloopies. I would have pushed back way harder on that. So. Anyway, All that's right. what I think. Well, I can't wait to see who gets nominated this year. I'll be reading Capital Letter closely. Um, again, it's free. You can sign up for it at cleveland.com news, uh, slash newsletters. Again, free. So <laughs> thanks for coming by, Jane. Sure thing. In a moment, we'll talk about the county jail, a big tax increase, and yes, more plastic bags. We do have some public officials who stand on the right side of history, unlike our state legislature. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney Astolfi. Hello, hello. 
It was just about a year ago that we received the U.S. Marshal's inspection report on the inhumane conditions at the Cuyahoga County Jail. And we have some big developments to talk about. Finally, let's start with a just-released inspection report. What does it show? Yeah, so this report that we got our hands on this week shows that there's been huge improvements made to the jail, you know, as determined by state inspectors. One of the big standout things to me was that, you know, this is the first time we have not seen any dings against various aspects of the medical care at the jail. Given everything that's happened in the past year, year and a half, that's a huge deal here. That the state is offering a decent inspection report is surprising because most of what we heard from the state over the past year, including the governor, has been pretty critical of the jail. Uh, Of course, this is the same inspection department that completely missed all of the issues that were spotted by the marshal service. Were you surprised that the state was the one that finally came through and said, hey, this is looking pretty good? Yeah, and then that's what makes this so notable. So just as recently as a couple months ago, um, the state's been doing monthly inspections, and this was their big annual inspection. So this was kind of the big one. But those monthly inspections did identify a lot of continuing problems. So to see this annual report come in and, and show that a lot of those have been mitigated is is noteworthy. Here. I know, like you showed, like they've made big progress from even October. Um, one of the problems uncovered at the jail was the lack of cameras and that even the cameras that they had were low in resolution. But good news, the county's changing that. Yeah, so, well, the county is buying new cameras um, to monitor the cells in which inmates with mental health issues are held. You know, that's where we saw a lot of the problems unfolding in the past, you know, year and a half. So getting better camera eyes on those individuals is crucial. And there's also going to be new cameras for the, what they call the bullpen, bullpen, which is where inmates are held as they're awaiting court and the hallways that they walk to get to court. That's also important because there's a lot of movement mm-hmm. back and forth through there, and, and those are kind of choke points where you want to have those extra sets of eyes. Mm-hmm. The, the question is, will they have a system in place to preserve what the cameras record? Because we've had examples of video disappearing, right? Right. That, that's been an, an issue we've reported on. So what I'm curious to find out going forward is what the county's broad long-term plans are for this camera system. These are individual cameras for these specific areas, but there is that need to get a a good system-wide system in place. Okay. So changing uh, topics a little bit, let's talk taxes. A few weeks back, we talked about how the county unveiled its wish for a $35 million tax increase for social services by refusing to say how the money was going to be spent. We now have a clearer idea of that, and what is surprising is that the county has a pretty good message to deliver in asking for that tax increase. So what's on their list? Yeah, so we found out that there's a lot of programs already in place um, for seniors and, and children and those who require federal benefits. What a lot of this money would be going towards is to make sure everybody who's eligible for those services, you know, get those get more services to folks who are eligible so it a lot of this is it's not like it's all new programs Mm -hmm. but it's um bringing folks up to speed on the programs that they already have but there are some new programs as well as we've reported they just bumbled hugely in the rollout of this by not providing any of the details about how they would spend it and they still have not said it as clearly as i'm about to but in reading your reporting what I'm, what I'm getting from that is is that Budish and Brady have come to the conclusion that as a county that is responsible for those who are in need, we're not doing the proper job of providing enough services. That, that what they're really asking voters here is to do a better job of being humanitarians, to do more for people who are mentally ill and people who need foster care. Uh, so, so this is not maintaining status quo, they want to make us a better steward for those who are in need, right? Is that it? Yeah, and and Dan Brady really hammered that point home during a council meeting this week. 
he, he again noted how we're one of the poorest um, cities in America, um, how we've got an aging population here that tends to skew older than other areas in the country, even though as a country we are all getting older. But his point was that we can keep doing what we've been doing and kind of maintain the programs and the services that the county's been offering thus far, or we can try and chip away at some of those systemic problems and give proactive care so we're not seeing fallout from those issues more down the line. I love it when a millennial uses the collective I know, I was to talk like about getting at older. Going, everyone but you, yeah. right? Um, specifically, what are some of the things they would spend money on? So a big piece of this would be continuing Armin Budish's um, pre-K program, getting better pre-K services to kids in the county. So that's $5 million. Yeah. Um, there's money for mental health in the Adams Board. The Adams Board has been flat funded for several years now. So this is kind of making up for lost ground. So on that one, I think that's $5 million too, you said, but they want to treat 1,000 more people. Who are these people? I mean, who are the thousand people that aren't getting treated now that would get treated? Is it the guys walking outside here from the homeless shelter or is it people in the suburbs? What what ails them that they need the treatment? Well, a big part of this discussion has been the mental health need. Um, the Adams Board has said our suicide rate, like the rest of the country, has been going up. And there's a lot of folks that they haven't been able to service on the mental health front. And, and that could be from a variety of services. So, yes, you, you're talking about folks in the city, probably predominantly folks in the city. But that doesn't exclude. Are these a thousand people that have sought services and been turned away? Like somebody calls up, says I'm suicidal and they say, well, we can't take care of you because we don't have the money. Or how are they going to find these thousand people? The Adams Board says the need is there and they haven't been able to service them in years past because of the flat funding aspect. All right. They're going to be coming in here to talk about this tax. I want to know who these thousand people are. You also mentioned there was $6 million for kinship care. Um, and I get the idea of kinship care. A kid taken away from his or her parents is better off with a known relative than with a stranger. But why does that require more money? And let's face it, if the parents are so incompetent they're taking the kids away, there's a pretty good chance that the relatives may also have some issues that might not make them the best parents. So wh why do we need $6 million to expand this program? So a couple of things there. So there, not all the kids will be eligible. So where there isn't an opportunity to go with a, you know, a fit relative, those kids will still go to traditional foster homes. But part of the kinship care conversation is about the initial upfront costs. So there needs to be money at the front end to pay for the thousand or so kids that are already in kinship care. Right now, relatives who take in their kids get, I think, a hundred and some dollars a month or a yeah, week. Yeah, to care for those children. And traditional foster families make several hundred dollars depending on the level of need that that child has. So relatives get less. They get significantly Far less. less. And so they're more less likely to want to take the kids in if they're living in poverty because they can't afford it. Right. It's, I mean, it's hard to care for their own family. And $100 doesn't... You want to take care of your nephew, say, but... Right. How do you cover diapers and formula? Right. That's a huge expense. A whole lot of things. Yeah. So when will the county get on top of this message? Because they fumbled it so badly at the beginning. They got a lot of ground to make up. Like we said, it seemed to have a winning message that we want to do a better job. We don't want the status quo. We want to help more people who are desperately in need. But it's an uphill battle now because they came out of the gate slow. When do they get this right? Yeah, so a lot of the information we've received in the past week or two has been through the council hearings as council decides whether they want to put this tax on the ballot. But I think a lot of it's going to have to come through the campaign and that'll come in the you know coming weeks and months. So in addition to following everything that happens in Cuyahoga County, you also cover the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority. So you have good news for riders there. A consultant suggests reducing the costs of all-day passes? Yes. So as part of RTA's efforts to really evaluate where they're going to take the agency in the face of continued declining ridership and revenues, they brought in this consultant to really do a deep dive on what their fair policy ought to be going forward. And for me, one of the most noteworthy things that came out of those recommendations this week was lowering the cost of the all-day pass back to the price it was a couple years ago. 
and that would that would put the all day pass at five dollars, which and from like what five fifty, right? It's but the five fifty number is kind of weird. weird. It's like who carries around two quarters to? But it, it costs two fifty per trip, so the all day pass is a little bit more expensive than it would cost for a round trip. So that's been a weird rub. Transit advocates have wanted it to be reduced to those twenty sixteen levels for a while, and that could that more, could more people bo- might want to ride, right? Yeah. yeah. Maybe they thought with all that restitution coming from the former head of the RTA board, George Dixon III, they have some room in the budget to subsidize fares. Dixon pleaded guilty this week to theft because he received health benefits for years, health insurance benefits for years without paying for them. Yeah, so reducing the price could lead to a $1.3 million loss for RTA. But like I said before, it could could boost ridership by 270000 So it's not like a one-for-one one there, but... Um, yeah, he's, yeah, he's not paying that much in restitution, but okay. <laughs> yeah, but there are several other things that, that the consultant suggested uh, about how RTA shake up its fares. And some of those include introducing free transfers with the advent of smart cards rta is one of i'd say probably one of the fewer agencies that doesn't have so if you have to take two buses to get somewhere then you have to pay two fares mostly unless you use one specific fare product that not as many people use so that's a big burden on lower income folks who are relying on that getting around town so and, and and another suggestion was fare capping which also kind of kind of gets at this issue if you ride so many times and you hit a certain limit the rest of your rides that day or say that week or that month are free so it's it's kind of getting at the equity question and looking at how how most of rta's riders are low income and Mm -hmm. this creates a real barrier interesting so let's do plastic bags part two of our segment we talked last week about the county's ban on plastic bags how it was supposed to go into effect january 1st but the cleveland city council was moving to exempt itself We'll talk to City Hall reporter Bob Higgs in a moment about what's up there, but the county has since taken action that delays enforcement of its ban? Yeah, so the county has said that it's not its consumer affairs department is not going to fine or go after stores that are still using plastic bags for the first six months. And Councilwoman Sunny Simon said that the county's also going to send out letters to all these retailers letting them know there's a six-month grace period. The county did this in part to appease the city once they heard the city was thinking of exempting itself. But when they did this moratorium, when they decided not to enforce it, they hadn't talked to the city, right? They now have. The city councilman, Sonny Simon, who was behind all this, I think was over at City Hall when they were dealing with their business to talk to city council. Do you get the sense that they're finally going to start coordinating on this? I mean, it seems like it. It things are pointing to that, but this is pretty late in the game to get to that point. So we're going to have to see how it unfolds from here. I saw that Orange Village um, already has its own band. So and that's where Pinecrest is like, you know, the very shishi shopping center. So if you buy something at, um, I don't even know, Vineyard Vines there, you're not going to get a plastic bag. So um, some places in Cuyahoga County are already moving ahead with this. So I think it'd be we should go check out the Christmas shoppers there and see if they brought their own totes to the mall. Um, but thanks for your time and wisdom, Courtney. See ya. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We have Cleveland City Hall reporter Bob Higgs in the studio. Hi, Bob. Hi. We might as well wrap up the plastic bag discussion. We've heard what the state is doing. We've heard what Cuyahoga County is doing. Now, Bob, tell us what Cleveland City Council did on Monday. Cleveland City Council passed an ordinance that essentially they opted out of the bag ban that the county's enacting. That ordinance was to take effect January 1st, so they wanted to get their own done quickly. But they also set up to do this study, and they have to have this study done in six months that looks at alternatives and then figure out what they're doing. So Council President Kevin Kelly wasn't pleased with how the county was rolling this out. He felt that the grocers in town were imperiled by it. And even though we were a month away from this taking shape, very little work had been done to let people know 
what to expect. So his thing, he came in to talk to us, was I want to do what I did with lead paint. I want to do what I did with infant mortality and with providing lawyers for people facing eviction. I want to get everybody together in a room who's affected by this and map this out and have conversations so that when it comes together, things can work. But his biggest fear has to do with the financial health of city grocers, which is very different in Cleveland than it is in the county. So talk a little bit about that. It's it's hugely different. Um, and you don't even have to go very far out of Cleveland. If you go to Cleveland Heights, an inner ring suburb, there's at least three large grocery stores in that town, plus little ones. In Cleveland, there are not that many of them. The uh, Giant Eagles pulled out a few years ago. They've pulled three or four stores out. They had real trouble getting replacements to come in, and they're from small chains, and it's because the profit margins are so tight in Cleveland for grocers. And his fear is this will escalate their costs. They'll end up losing money. They'll end up shutting down, and you have food deserts all over the city. And the city actually subsidizes grocers. He said they put a million dollars into a store up in one of the uh, south southeast neighborhoods. So so it's not just that these guys live on a thin margin. They actually operate in the red and might not be there without some subsidy. Right. And and you can see it, the two places in particular I can think of out on Buckeye towards Shaker Heights and up on St. Clair in what they call the East Side Market. They worked for uh, years to get a new grocery in this uh, East Side Market and it's struggling badly. And in Buckeye, they had to talk a small chain to come into coming in and really sunk a lot of development money in to redo that store. So the city is out for right now, but in six months, city council is going to get this report and then they'll decide what to do. Right. And for Kelly, one of his concerns beyond the, the economic implications uh, is that he doesn't like the idea that we're only looking at one form of single use bags. Paper bags cost more to the vendor. Mm -hmm. They have their own pollution issues. And some, depending on how you're looking at it, you can make an argument that paper bags are a worse polluter than the plastic ones. Because of the manufacturing. Right, because of the manufacturing. So they're going to bring together people on all sides of the issue, sort out what the best course of action is. That might mean they join the county ban. Mm -hmm. Might mean they put in their own restrictions that would affect 385,000 people. And complicate the rest of us. And (laughs) complicate everyone else's life. Okay, but on that, will they actually talk to the county? I mean, one of the biggest problems here is the county did its thing without really talking to the city. The city, without talking to the county much at the 11th hour, decided to yank itself free. Not not for bad reasons, but, but we were kind of stunned when Kevin was here saying, why aren't you talking to each other? And he admitted that they should be. Will they, in this next six months, try to work together the way elected leaders should, or do you think it's going to be two separate bodies going their own way? I think there's some recognition that they should have been working better together. They haven't said who's going to be on this committee yet, but I think it will probably include somebody from the county so they can talk about that county ban and how it's going to be enforced and how to mesh with it best. But that does remain to be seen. You can tell from the conversations with both sides about this, there's there's a certain amount of tension there between the county council and the city council. That's I don't know whether it's rivalry or jealousy or what, but there, there's something there that yeah, has gotten in the way with this. That was clearly there. All right, let's get to the story that never fails to get people talking. Mayor Frank Jackson's wish for a dirt bike track. This was an idea the mayor pushed in 2017, hoping to build a relationship between City Hall and a population that does not often talk with city leaders. But people pretty much hated this idea. They hated that the dirt bike riders who race around the city flouting traffic laws are not rounded up. They, they hate the idea of the noise. No city council member would accept this in his or her ward. So the big question here is, why did Jackson bring it back after pretty much two years of quiet? I think what you're seeing a combination of two things. One is, if you watch the mayor for any time, you know that there's a little bit of stubbornness, stubbornness and stick to there. The other thing is, though, uh, he really thinks this is an option because you have a large number of people from impoverished neighborhoods who are into this riding culture and 
finding a way to try to get them off the street, develop writing skills, develop mechanics skills that could turn into a career is something he'd like to pursue. And he often will talk about like the X games that we had several years ago. Who would have ever thought skateboarding or snowboarding could turn into a, a career? And now you have multimillionaires who are doing it for a living. So he's never given up on that concept, but he's got to find a way to make it work. But why now specifically? And what did he do to bring it back? Well, it's it's been sitting sort of under the surface all along, and they've been methodically moving through it. And it happened to come up now, I, I think, by chance. We're at the end of the year, so they want to get legislation moving so then coming into next year they can start working towards the next step. But um, in the spring, the first component to this, when they decided, okay, we're going to bring in experts to help us do this right, mm -hmm. they brought in people to teach skills, mechanic skills, in little sessions like out of Camp Forbes and at some of the rec centers. And they also brought in people who do stunt riding for a living to do demonstrations and to talk to kids and show them what they can do. That was the first piece of it. The second piece, though, is figuring out where to put this and finding someone to run it. And that's what this is. They need to get somebody to start looking at that or it's just never going to happen. And how much did they spend on this? The, they've, like they've approved 000. about 156000 right. right. So so why didn't city council just say no? Let's face it. We're two years away from city elections. The voters hate this idea. No council member is going to want to get behind it. You've heard the council members one by one stand up and say, look, you want to talk about dirt bike riders? They're marauding over this, all over the city. we got to stop it. Jackson doesn't have a site for it, even if he did. And even though his goal of building these relationships is, is laudable, we learned some things in 2017 that says this logistically is a big problem. Dirt bikes aren't street legal, so the kids that are riding them on the east side, wherever the track is, have no way of getting them there that's legal. It's not like there's, there's buses with trailers that will take them there. They, they don't have cars. They're often underage. This, this really, I think if you look at this realistically, has almost zero chance of happening. So why doesn't city council, looking ahead to, to 2020, what is it, 2021, the elections in 2021, just say no. We're not, we're not going to squander $156,000 on something we know no council member will ever accept and that we're never going to see. You've got a couple of things that work here. One is there's a certain level of respect for the mayor, so they don't want to just thumb their nose at him. Um, so we can just squander 156000 so $156, there, there are some members of council who like the idea, who think it uh, has merit. Who? Uh, well, Blaine Griffin. Blaine, you think Blaine Griffin would accept this in his work? Oh, Blaine Griffin is probably the leading candidate right now to be the next mayor. Do you really think Blaine Griffin is going to take this in his ward? Well, that's the thing. Whether you're willing to take it in your ward and whether you think it's a good idea are two very yeah, different but, questions. Okay, so so there, were, there were some members who talked publicly about they like the idea, they at least like the initiative, and I think they want to take a look and see what happens. It might also mean, though, that a consultant comes back and says, you're not going to find a vendor willing to stick his neck out and run this thing. Think of the liability. The one place that this would make sense, that you could argue the noise wouldn't be a problem and that the city has ample land, is out by the airport. They right. bought all that extra land back you know, 20 years ago for an airport expansion. It didn't happen. They tore down the houses. And, you know, it's not going to be louder than the airplanes coming in. But I'll bet the ward councilman out there would not have it because the residents are going to say, we don't want these dirt bike marauders coming into our neighborhood. So even in the most likely place, you're going to hit a brick wall. They inserted into this. Before anything can happen, the administration is going to have to come back to council and get, yeah. get further approvals. <laughs> I'm sure. One of the things they're going to have to get that's included in the alleged sign off by the ward councilman where it'll be located if there's a site found and sign off by any adjacent council members yeah. who are within 500 feet of the site. And the, particularly the noise issue is going to keep them from saying yes. Yeah. I mean, nobody even wanted to call it a dirt bike track, right? Like they called it a complex and they called dirt bikes off highway vehicles. So but everybody knew what they're talking about, correct? Oh, yeah, it, was, it really was an in entertaining exchange because Brian Casey's a councilman from the west side, and he's reading the ordinance, and he's 
asked the guy from the administration, isn't this the dirt bike thing? <laughs> and, and he got a Dodge answer. It's for off-road highway vehicles. dumb. Off-highway vehicles so and dumb. BMX. And they, there was about five minutes of back and forth here where the administration's guy for capital projects would not say dirt bike. Oh, jeez. Well, another tough one for the administration this week involves some AIDS grants the city lost from the state. We received a press release from the city that turned out to be pretty misleading. The city said it didn't understand why it lost the grants, but the state was quite clear about the reasons and how they had been communicated. So why exactly did the city lose the money? The state's answer is that they have been under a corrective plan since February. The city has The been. city has On been. how they spend the existing money? How they run the program. I, there's not an allegation that they're mis- that, that, what, what is the program? Is okay. it a counseling program? What, what there is, is, there are two grants a total of 1.5 mil. They pay for treatment, education, uh, preventive measures. Uh, treatment, so they provide medicine? Help and help direct them, okay. people to help. I mean, basically the whole spectrum. In six counties. In six counties. It's Cuyahoga, Ashtabula, Lake Geauga, Medina, and Lorraine. So it's, it's, it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. This last year was the first year for this multi-county program. Before that, the counties had a long relationship with the state on dealing with AIDS since the 90s. But this last year was the first year for this multi-county. And they approach. already, even though it was the first year, they were already under corrective action? In February, the state came in and they ran down a laundry list of things you need to correct. In the second month of the, pro- of the program? Yes. Okay, so not not off to an auspicious no. start. Vacancies on staff that you need to have filled quickly. So the state was like on that. them for this the whole time, even though the city's claiming we don't know why we lost the grant. The right. state is saying we were very clear. And then there was a scoring system, right, where they— Right, so when you, you apply for the second year, they then have this metric they use to score your application. And the thing that works against the city then is— these deficiencies, not hiring staff quickly enough, not ha- not testing. Uh, they got dinged particularly because they're supposed to test, 40% of their testing should be men who are having sex with men, which is a high-risk group. Last year it was 12.4%, and they were not making progress towards that 40% goal. Uh, of the people they were testing, only 12.4% were men having sex with men? Right, something like 74% so were heterosexuals. Wow. Uh, the collection of data for reporting, there's a, a, a line in the notice of the city that says the data collection was either poorly done or done so badly the data was useless. Um, and it's a whole laundry list of things like that, ranging from how they run the program to how they staff the program. So why didn't they just fess up? Obviously, they knew this was a problem, and instead they created a two two-day news story in which they get to look embarrassed because the state had to explain. I think there was a certain amount of spin they were going for here. Because that always works with us. Well, exactly. (laughs) They sent the release out late in the afternoon. In fact, I called them because it had all kinds of holes in it that needed to be filled. Oh, that that release, it was like a gigantic red flag. Something is really fishy here. And then they said, okay, well, at 4.30, we'll have a news conference just in the hallway, and a couple of TV stations are coming. So everyone gets set up for that. It, too, seems fishy. But by then, now you're beyond 5 o'clock when they're done, so you can't get people at the state level to reply. Right. And they controlled two TV stations, both just said, the state's taking away this grant. Well, we, I mean, we reported the same thing. We just said we couldn't reach the state. The right. state came flying out of the woodwork saying, hold on, hold on. But look, what's the upshot here? People who need AIDS counseling in Cleveland and their environs won't get it. More people will get AIDS. I mean, isn't it in the state's best interest to overcome the city's incompetence to make sure these populations are served here? So, So in Cleveland... The population won't be served. How is that in the state's best interest? Or another city take over Cleveland's program? If I were betting, I would say it will either end up with Cuyahoga County or coordinated through one of the hospitals. That'll that'll happen by January? They they extended the grant period for the city a month, and they're right now rebidding this program. And their intention is to have the new grant uh, principal in place 
by the time this runs the out. The end of January. Right, by correct. the end of January. So so let's say that it ended up being Cuyahoga County or Metro Health. They could have the program set up so that on February 1st, they take over and they run the grant program. So then with the city losing this program, could they take the people they have dedicated to this program and put it into the lead area where they also need to have some serious work done? They seem to indicate they'd have to either find new jobs for them that are open let or, or let them go. Let yeah, abatement let a, would be a good let place for it. Let abatement is a good place for it. Okay, Bob, thanks for coming in. Bags, bikes, and boondoggle. Just another week at City Hall. Okay, thanks. Next up, we'll talk about 50 restaurants that opened in Cleveland this year. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Mark Bona and Annie Nikoloff had a piece this week about 50 restaurants that opened in Northeast Ohio, and they are here to tell us how they found all of them. So welcome, guys. Hey. Hi, guys. All right. 50 restaurants is a lot, and these are all over Northeast Ohio. How'd you find them all? Yeah, uh, so a lot of them are through social media, people talking about the new place they just ate at, and we'd follow up there. Um, Other ones, I feel like I was just driving down the road, and I noticed a new sign and figured out what restaurant came in and a new neighborhood. Really? So So it's just by happenstance. Yeah, a lot of them came about that way, so... Yeah, and also we've we've covered a lot of these as they open. I mean, and, and it's really a task to make sure that we get to uh, as many as we can. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of a twenty four seven type of thing these days. So we went back and looked at our own coverage as well. All right, enough about process. How about each of you pick three favorites from the list? Danny, you go first. Pick three and tell us why. Sure. Uh, so. The three that come to mind for me are Zug in Cleveland Heights, uh, Sawyer's in Shaker Heights, and Borican Juke Joint in Lorraine. Um, With Zug, we just recently went there. It opened uh, in the old Liquid Planet spot in Cedar Fairmount, and they have these delicious donuts that are actually Mm. squash that have been fried, and you don't think that would be good, but it was really good. I want to try that. And that's a Douglas Katz restaurant, so um, that was great. And then we also went to Sawyer's and Van Aken. Uh, Van Aken has been opening so many restaurants and shops over the past year, and that's the new Jonathan Sawyer restaurant. It's a really great addition to the area. Um, Everything in there is, like, wood-fired, and just you can taste it in all the food. Um, What did you eat there that you liked? I'm trying to remember what I ate there. That was a little bit longer ago. All right. Man. Uh, anyway, everything I remember was very, oh, I had the salted fish and okay. I had the French fries and they had these chunks of like garlic on the French fries, which to me means they're really good French fries. I love garlic on anything. Um, and then Borican Juke Joint, I really liked in downtown Lorraine. So I grew up in Lorraine and Amherst and just to see that area coming back and all this revi- revitalization efforts happening in Lorraine, it's been really great. And Borican Juke Joint's like the latest thing to happen there. Um, they do this Puerto Rican style ramen. It was delicious. Uh, just the vibe in there is great. They're going to do live music. It's really, really fun. And people should go to downtown Lorraine. Woohoo. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Mark, what were your favorite? Well, I've got th- there's a lot on this list. It was we had to narrow this list down. Uh, the th- the the ones I would pick would be I'd say first Ohio City Pizzeria. I've been dying to get out there. Uh, this goes to not only a new Italian restaurant and pizzeria in Ohio City, but it's it's also a uh, a second chance place. This is the restaurant that is actually owned and run and operated by the Westside Catholic Center. They're hiring a lot of the clients in that area. This was a dormant place for a while. They renovated it. It looks like a really quaint place. I've been in there. Can't wait to eat. I think it's great for the neighborhood. My other choice would be, uh, I would say I'd call this one the Cuyahoga Falls uh, Front uh, Front Street renovation. Uh, they did a lot on the roads in this area. And when, when you renovate an area, you're also going to be bringing in a lot of restaurants. That seems to be a natural following. Two in particular, Ohio Brewing Company has made their home uh, on front now for a few months. And Leo's Italian Social is right across the street. Uh, they're serving both brunch and dinner as well as as well as well lunch. Leo's is owned by Chef Art Poor, which is the restaurant group that runs the Burntwood Taverns and a few other uh, uh, restaurants in the area. And then finally... Uh, Arche Brewing Company expanded to downtown Akron. I think this is really interesting because, number one, it goes to the continuous growth in uh, craft beer in Northeast Ohio. Uh, but this place is absolutely amazing. It's 56,000 square feet. Wrap wow. your head around that. That's a, that's a huge, huge place. It's in the former BF Goodrich plant on Main Street. 
it hmm. overlooks this giant plant. I mean, the fermenters, fermenters are huge anyway, and they look like ants compared to, to nothing else in the space. There's cool graffiti art. They've got a kitchen and uh, a couple of bars, and it's, it's a really neat space. I've got to go check that out. It's close to my parents' house. So, uh, But while we have you both here, let's talk a little about things to do this holiday season. Chris would ring that jingle bell if we had one. I'll bring it next week. Um, you both are turned into fun things. So what do you recommend this December? Mark, you first. Well, first of all, I would say ice rinks. Uh, when I turned 40 years old, about 100 years ago, I checked <laughs> off a bucket list uh, type of item about learning to skate. There are many, many rinks in Northeast Ohio, and they're all, they're all affordable. They're cheap. They're a great activity. It's healthy. Uh, it's a family activity, and anyone can do it. You could be a great skater or a novice. It doesn't I, matter. I was actually just at the Akron one last week. And I love it's that. It's like two bucks. Uh, it's another $2 if you want to rent your skates. And they have the Christmas tree there. They have like... They have like um, ice bikes and like bumper boats on ice. So they it, added you, the bikes yeah, this year. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Our colleague Robin Goist in Akron wrote a story about that, adding the bikes. Uh, Akron's Lock 3 is a great one. There's the rink at Wade Oval. Uh, there's Crocker Park. There's Pinecrest has the, has one in the area they call, which I always laugh at this name, Central Park in the middle <laughs> of, of Pinecrest. So that would be one choice. Uh, another is there is a plethora of art walks throughout the area. Uh, Annie has written about several of them. I think these are really neat. Uh, they're usually often at nighttime, uh, sometimes during the day. This is a great opportunity to um, buy unique gift items from local independent makers. Uh, you can find something for the holidays, find something, you know, a gift for a friend, uh, and then you can go celebrate at one of the watering holes in, in Tremont. But Little Italy has one. Tremont has, has a, I think, a very good one, uh, the second Friday of every month, and I think that's that's really neat. And then um, two final ones. I'll, I'll bump this to four. <laughs> Uh, Lake Effects Bar is a pop-up bar. I need to bar. go there. I've never been. It's it's if you're into the holidays and you want just to relax, and it's right in the heart of downtown Cleveland. It's right at the Schofield Building on East Ninth, across from Heinen's. It's completely oh, okay. decorated for the holidays. Uh, this is only around for about a month. Uh, for, it just started on Black Friday. It'll run through the 31st. I've got a story online that details all the hours. Uh, and and last year it took on a nostalgic retro. Mad Men look. Uh, this year they promise a lot of color and a lot of, of photo opportunities. A rep told me it just hits the uh, the right notes for everybody. And it's right where Parker's downtown is, the restaurant. And then here's something. If you haven't seen A Christmas Story, well, we've all seen it on TV <laughs> a, a thousand times. But uh, the Cleveland Playhouse is back with A Christmas Story. And I, I really, really enjoy this. I saw it about a year ago. Uh, it's fun. It's something for the family. And it's, it's just kind of nice to, uh, to check out. All right, Annie, you compile our list of things to do regularly. So what are your top items this season? Yeah, well, to bounce off what Mark was saying about holiday shopping, I feel like it's so great. And Cleveland has so many opportunities to shop local. Mm -hmm. um, I put together a guide of Cleveland holiday markets, and there were a couple on there that I wanted to point out here. Uh, the Little Italy Holiday Art Walk was on there. That's a great one. Um, I, I also have two others. Uh, there's the Rock and Roll Holiday Flea at the Beachland Ballroom. So oh. the music venue turns into a whole shopping area. You can also grab brunch when you're there. Um, and there's also the Screw Factory. They do this uh, holiday market just a few days before Christmas. And they call and it like the last minute one, yes, right? Yes, yeah. I went to it last year to get some last minute gifts and I found everything I needed. It was so cool to but see all But it looked like art. you put super amount of thought into it and you'd had them since July. It's, it's true. It worked out great. <laughs> Um, and then I have two other holiday-themed events that aren't shopping-related. Um, at the zoo this year, they're doing the wild winter lights at night, where they just put up all these cool holiday light displays. It's going through, I think, January 5th. So even if you don't have time before Christmas, there's a few more days after, uh, which just looks so cool. Like, you can go see the animals, and then when the sun sets, you can stay for the lights. And then also, Winter Tide is happening on December 14th in Gordon Square, where they have all this live music, shopping. They're also doing $1 uh, showings of a Christmas story at the Capitol Theater. So if people want to see that in on the big screen. In case you haven't seen it somehow. I, I feel like everybody has to see it at this point. But you can see it on the big screen once again. So. All right. Well, if we don't have you on again this year, we hope you have a wonderful holiday. Thanks for joining us on This Week in the CLE. Thank you. Thanks.
Okay, Laura, it's just you and me to wrap this up. Had enough of plastic bags? Never. This story's really ramped up in the last few weeks, and I think we'll be hearing a lot more about it in the new year. We need to get it done, the ban, I mean, and I'm tired of Ohio being behind the curve on environmental issues. Yeah, we're hearing from a lot of people on this, and they're all fearing that this will take a real shot at our international image. Yeah, actually, at the city council meeting recently, somebody wore like a dress of plastic bags, so they've even got their photo ops ready. I don't want to be the state that protects plastic and ends e-check and builds a dirt bike track with noisy, uh, polluting stuff. So, so much for a green city on a blue lake. I hope we get it right in 2020. <laughs> we did have good news on the jail. There's that. A year later, things are really looking up there. And the crime reform effort. That is another good piece of news. Well, let's end there then with good news. Thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE. We publish new episodes each Thursday wherever you get podcasts. We also publish a short bonus episode on Saturdays in which we ask lingering questions about the week's top stories. In between, please visit cleveland.com for breaking news. And if you want a curated list each weekday of the top news, subscribe to our free morning briefing, The Wake Up, at cleveland.com newsletters. The Wake Up is also delivered each day on Alexa. Thank you.